Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features highlights from a conversation with Helen Bowden, a Spring 2017 Joan Shorenstein Fellow and former director of BBC News and BBC Radio. She talks about her new research paper titled In Search of Unbiased Reporting in Light of Brexit, Trump and Other Reporting Challenges in the UK and US, which you can read in full at shorensteincentre.org. The paper compares the BBC's value of impartiality to the American value of objectivity in journalism and the pressures placed on both in their respective environments. We begin with Helen giving a synopsis of her paper. Well, my project, which has been through many permutations, is really looking at the fabric of journalism as we understand it. It's not about the technology. It's not about the people. It's about what we call the norms and values, the things lots of journalists don't actually think about. So they assume they will be, in BBC terms, impartial in the way they look at evidence or objective in American terms, although that's not used extensively. They don't think, where did that come from? They just think it's there. It actually wasn't always the case that journalism was trying to be objective and impartial. It was the case until about the 1900s that journalism particularly in this country, was very partisan and propagandist or highly sensationalist. And then Walter Lippmann, who's a hugely influential figure in American journalism, argued strongly for the idea of an objective methodology in journalism. He'd seen the way Americans reported the Russian Revolution and was appalled in both directions about the amount of bias that was brought to the journalism. So what I've done for my sins is look at the way these norms and values have emerged in two different cultures, in two different forms, but actually very similar. The kinds of limitations on them, because um, money and commercial drive in America is essential, organisations can't function without their commercial imperative being met. Um, And so I've looked at how that has limited some of the journalism and the operation of the norms. I've looked at how this extraordinary institution, the BBC, developed from John Reith, a sort of visionary, around the same kind of time, actually, in the 1920s, and how his commitment to impartiality, which means not taking sides at all, except on matters of freedom of expression, for the BBC, both in its journalism and in its um institutional position? How did that grow up? And then I've looked at how easy or not it is for reporters, and I used to be a reporter, um, to use those norms and values in a real life situation. And, you know, generals say something like, you have a very good war plan, and as soon as you hit the battlefield, it falls apart. And it's not quite fair to say that's true of how journalists use their traditional norms and values, but it's also not entirely untrue. These norms and values are very ideal. And actually, when real people use them in really intense news situations, which all newsrooms are intense to some degree, um, they don't always operate as well as they ideally should. And I've got some examples of where it's gone wrong and some of the lessons we've learned. There's a kind of intrinsic tension between the speed of 
technology and newsrooms and the thinking you need to bring to journalism so that you don't fall into the bear traps of stereotyping, thinking three facts actually tell you a story when you need to give the context of those facts and it could be very different. Slow thinking and fast thinking are the ways I talk about that tension. Um, They're not my ideas. They come from Danny Kahneman, who's written a brilliant book on this. He's a Nobel award-winning economist. Um, And essentially, slow thinking is logical, deliberative, rational. It's exactly what you need in a newsroom when you've got a lot of information and a lot of people trying to manipulate you. Fast thinking is... um, more emotionally based, more instinctive. You know, it's why we often stereotype people and situations. Actually, newsrooms play very strongly to the fast thinking part of the brain. So that tension between slow thinking and fast thinking in a news environment, and you can't have slow news, although I'll talk about that in a minute, um, is um, an ongoing tension and actually one that can never be resolved. Helen expanded on the idea of slow news and how this concept applies to the BBC in the fast-moving digital age. I talk a little bit about slow news, which is an idea that I talked about first um, about six months ago when I decided I was going to leave the BBC because I wanted to talk about shifts in journalism during my career. I'm certainly not the first person to have had the idea. I think it actually comes from a British psychologist from about 10 years ago. And um, she was very, very concerned about what she sees as the impact of digital technology on the way we use our brains. I used it really in defence of speech radio, which is my great passion, both journalism on speech radio and speech radio generally. I used to be controller of Radio 4 and I used to report for Radio 4. Um, But actually, I'm very interested at how my successor at BBC News, James Harding, is doing a brilliant job of employing the idea of slow news as a shorthand for what I would call slow thinking. So he's initiated some very thoughtful ideas about how you don't make the experience for the audience slow, but you do actually help the journalist bring more analysis, explanation and expertise. This all goes back to um, probably the most influential director general the BBC has ever had after John Reith, who's a guy called John Burt, who in the 70s wrote um, a series of articles for The Times on something that he called the mission to explain. Um, He wrote them with Peter Jay, who subsequently became ambassador for the UK in Washington. And they argued that There wasn't a liberal bias or a conservative bias in television news. There was a bias against understanding. And they um, said that the bias against understanding was because television journalists never put enough context around the facts they gave audiences in news. Actually, it's very difficult to give context simply in television. It's a very narrative form. Speech radio is a much more analytical form, which I talk about in my pre-Italia speech of six months ago. Burt became Deputy Director General and then Director General, and he transformed BBC News. He was enormously unpopular for doing it, um, but he he essentially made BBC News focus on a um, a broadsheet rather than a tabloid agenda, focus on expertise. And he invested heavily in news gathering. He invested heavily in digital technology. And he really made a difference. And you can still see that in 
BBC News today. But it is hard. All the surveys that the BBC does of its own journalism demonstrate time and again that actually it's still very difficult for daily news journalists to give full context or enough context for audiences to understand the meaning of facts. Facts don't sit there and tell you the truth of anything unless they have an underlying story or narrative, which means you need context and you need significance. When John Burt was Director General, these words became sort of either scorned or parodied. And lots of people claim the news he produced under his regime was sort of dull and didactic. But it's interesting that James Harding now, many decades on, is implementing a new version, in my view, of Burtism, a, a version for a digital age and doing it with great flair. Helen talked about the BBC's commitment to impartiality and why she was interested in using this as a basis for her research paper. I would say I came to this topic through sheer ignorance of how difficult it would be. I'm very committed to the idea of impartiality, both as a method of journalism and as actually a stance for the BBC. I think the reason the BBC is so trusted as a news provider, both in the UK and around the world is partly because it is not just not partisan, it would never endorse a politician. It does not take a position on anything controversial. And that's hugely different from anything in this country. Probably NPR is the only thing that comes close to it. But NPR is a modestly funded organisation doing great work, but it's not got the scale and resource of the BBC. Um, the BBC is still consumed incredibly widely in the UK. 77% of the UK population touches the BBC every week. Um, and as I said, its trust scores are extremely high and actually, interestingly, went up, I am told, um, after uh, the Brexit referendum because it was trusted to be impartial and not take sides. So as a subject, it's been in my blood for a very long time. I've had to defend it because lots of people don't think the BBC is impartial. Um, and if you're director of news, you come in for a lot of aggression as people who are on one side or another and feel intensely about that side um, attack you for not being impartial. Actually, what they mean usually is that they want you to be partial in their direction. And of course, the people who feel most strongly about things, um, as we all do, bring that perspective on everything. Um, so it was when I was, I was director of news for eight years and it was incredibly interesting and very testing to operate impartially. Um, but I do think it's extremely important. I think it's important for other public service organisations around the world. And um, it takes immense discipline and a kind of austere attitude. You know, there's not much romance in not siding with things. I mean, the only thing the BBC tries to side with is accuracy, truth and the audience. But that's not nearly as romantic as um, some other kinds of more partisan journalism. So it's not... Um, an easy subject either to live or actually to write about. I find it enormously difficult to write about it. Norms and values, what on earth are they? How do they operate? Are they the journalism? Yes, they make up the journalism, but they're not actually the journalism. You know, there were moments when I could have wept with frustration at my inability to write a sentence that made any sense to me, let alone anybody else. So it's been a highly iterative process, this. We asked Helen what she found most surprising in her research. The most surprising thing for me in some ways was the existence of something called the Fairness Doctrine, which was abolished in the US in 1987 because it had only been there 
to ensure breadth of opinion and seriousness of purpose amongst broadcasters when there was limited distribution. As soon as technology exploded with cable television and FM radio, um, policymakers felt you didn't need a fairness doctrine anymore um, because they felt people would have a marketplace of ideas. Those ideas would swap and integrate and challenge each other. And I suspect somewhere along the way, they thought the marketplace would mean people with different ideas actually spoke to each other. Um, the abolition of the fairness doctrine, um, the rise of opinionated talk radio and the subsequent rise of Fox News, um, Rupert Murdoch saw the success of Rush Limbaugh and radio and realized he could take on the television networks, which he did incredibly brilliantly with Fox, has led to a complete repositioning of ideas of fairness and balance. So you could argue, and I think Fox would argue, that you get fairness and balance uh, from them because they fairly balance within their own terms. Um, uh, and there's a MSNBC on the other side to offer fairness and balance. The problem is, unless you're watching two channels at once, you don't hear opposing views testing each other. And that's the thing I've found extraordinary, because the point of BBC journalism is you bring people together who don't agree with each other, and they have to test each other's arguments. The, the public has to hear, you know, people of opposing or semi-opposing views or subtly different views, testing and challenging each other, not shouting past each other. Um, so that the fairness doctrine was really interesting and it's little known. Stephen, my researcher, said he'd never heard of it. And I guess in a free market environment where regulation is minimised in all sorts of areas of life and you have the First Amendment, um, it feels intensely anachronistic now. But actually, it's abolition and the rise of different technologies and then um, economic models around, around those technologies has shaped the media environment to a much greater extent than I'd fully appreciated. Helen spoke more about the importance of John Reith, Director General of the BBC from 1927 to 1938, in establishing many of the BBC's enduring principles. The prescience of John Reith in the way he thought about the BBC from the very beginning. The reason he obviously argued for impartiality as an institutional core value was because if you want everybody to pay for you, which is what the licence fee, which funds the BBC, essentially does, you can't be taking sides because you'll alienate part of your paying public. Um, but he actually was very idealistic about the BBC. He wanted it to be for everybody. He talked about bringing the best of everything to every home. And he wanted it to, as it were, raise people's expectations. And that can sound very elitist. And to some extent, I think it was. But it was also saying information should be democratically allocated. Great entertainment, great culture shouldn't be the preserve just of those who could afford to buy it that if everybody chips in, uh, you create a huge pool of money and the BBC gets about three and a half billion pounds from you know, its public service licence fee, which is not government money, by the way. It is raised directly from individuals who have a television or um, who use BBC iPlayer. If you have this huge pool of money, everybody will get something of value. And the BBC is always about taking people of, on journeys, journeys of entertainment, journeys of curiosity, um, and it's always wanted to be popular. It's never seen itself as an organisation that was just for an elite. And in reality, it's not. Over 90% of the population touch the BBC at least once a week in the UK. And people get different amounts of value from, from it. 
Um, and obviously, it's under pressure like every legacy media organization. But those initial principles of wreath are phenomenally democratic and morally driven, really. They're sort of starting from the position that all of us can be better than we were and culture and information and entertainment can make us better as individuals and we can have a more civilised society. It's very profound. With social media allowing members of the public to give instant feedback or criticism to journalists or media organisations, we asked Helen if the BBC and its reporters felt under increasing pressure to take a partisan stance on issues in the news. There's always been intense pressure on the BBC to take one side or another. And the Brexit referendum was a perfect example. And it's interesting because the Leave campaign feel very jubilant that they feel they won the social media campaign. And I think there's lots of evidence that they did. But most people, according to the Electoral Reform Society, got their information from the BBC, which will have been television, radio, BBC tweets, uh, and, you know, the BBC online on their digital phones. And swooping campaigns from social media started quite early on. And I think the BBC has been quite canny about recognising them for what they are. They are only like 50 people writing to you by letter, except the scale is much bigger. But that's all it is. I remember when I was control of Radio 4, I put Harry Potter, the whole of Harry Potter being read by Stephen Fry on Radio 4 on Boxing Day. And some of our older listeners were outraged. Um, I'd also provided a complete Radio 4 service on another uh, bandwidth. But I got probably 300 letters, which honestly, in those days was a deluge. Now, you're, you know, you would get so many more now through social media. But actually, when we measured the audience for this outrageous idea that I produced, um, we got over 4 million people listening, which was far, far more than we would ever have got listening to a normal Radio 4 um, day. It was a very special thing. It brought families together. It brought young people in. Stephen Fry's reading is superb. It was a great recording. And it reminded me that people who feel very intensely can knock you off balance, but you need to step back. You need your slow thinking and you need to step back and get it into perspective. Of course, you mustn't be indifferent to people's anger and rage, but we're living in an age of anger. And it's incredibly important that some institutions just quietly step back and understand how significant or not this is. The other thing is the BBC has been bullied almost from its beginning. And so it's got, you know, a thick skin for dealing with the bullying. It's been bullied by the press, which is its competitors, and it's been bullied by um, politicians. And the good thing about the BBC is almost within every generation, there are people who will withstand that bullying. Finally, Helen shared what she hopes readers will take away from her research paper and her advice for journalists in these increasingly turbulent times. This essay of mine um, is less an argument, although there is an argument in it, than an exploration of ideas. But what I hope people come away with is an understanding that norms and values remain critically important in an age of growing propaganda in news and whilst they may be flawed in their implementation because journalists are only people and there are, as I've tried to explain, external pressures of economics and politics and the enduring speed of the news cycle, actually these norms and values, you know, objectivity, impartiality, fairness, balance, due accuracy, 
they're all we've got against political disinformation and news that effectively is propaganda, whatever source it comes from. And so now is definitely not the time for serious journalists in serious news organisations to start wavering in their commitment to the old-fashioned norms and values. You can read Helen Bowden's full paper at shorensteincentre.org by clicking on Research. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.